please open to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning in a message that I've entitled, The Beauty of Divine Grace. I'm going to read our text and then we will look at it together. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. The faithful pastor who lived in the first part of the 20th century, A.W. Tozer, you probably have heard of him, possibly read some of his material, he defined the very familiar theological concept of grace this way. He said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, welcome the outcast, and bring into favor those who were under just disapprobation. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. These are words that are, that are dear to our hearts, which believers have sung for, for many years. The concept of divine grace is critical for us as believers. Why? Because we know that without the intervention of divine grace in our lives, we would be lost in our sin and we would be destined to hell for all of eternity. Well, this morning in our text, Paul zeroes in on divine grace being the motivation to live holy lives. You remember the last several weeks, thinking through biblical discipleship in the local church. We, we thought through its, its, its product, its process, and its purpose. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Titus and other spiritual leaders in the church are instructed to teach various groups of people who make up the congregations in Crete to live lives that are marked by self-control, obedience, and a commitment to the things of God. So the question is this, what drives this discipleship process? If that's the instruction that's been given to Titus concerning dealing with these churches on the island of Crete and, and to us as believers, as God's word is timeless and the principles hold true, what then drives this discipleship process? Well, the conjunction that transitions Paul's focus in verses 1 through 10 to verses 11 through 14, 4, you see that right at the beginning of verse 11, gives us, indicates to us that he is going to give us the reason or the rationale for what was instructed in those first 10 verses. We could say it like this, that divine grace motivates believers to live lives of holiness for the sake of the church and for the sake of the world. Divine grace motivates believers to live lives of holiness for the sake of the church and the world. So how is it then that grace compels believers to live for Christ? Well, in this text, in verses 11 through 14, we see five motivating features of divine grace that, that summon believers to live lives pleasing to God. Five motivating features of divine grace that summon believers to live lives pleasing to God. And the first motivating feature of divine grace is found in verse 11, and it is this. It is the purpose of divine grace. 
the purpose of divine grace. Look again at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Paul begins this section that he transitions into by first of all declaring the overall purpose of divine grace. And the purpose of divine grace is God sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners. Grace is a beneficial, undeserved gift. That is to say that it can't be earned, it cannot be merited. You you can do nothing to earn the grace of God. The grace of God is bestowed upon believing sinners strictly according to his character and according to his desires. It is a free gift that benefits those whom he bestows it upon. And here specifically, it is referring to God's saving act bestowed freely upon believing sinners. In fact, if you look at the text... It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Grace here, personified, is Jesus personified. You can see that as Paul continues on, saying that that the grace of God, that is the grace that is sourced in God, has appeared. He's using grace as the personification of Christ. He's saying, Jesus Christ is grace. Grace personified. And that grace, Christ, has appeared. That verb translated appeared is is in the emphatic position, meaning it's at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek text, emphasizing its importance. It means to show oneself or, or to make an appearance. And what Paul is highlighting here is, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is Christ taking on human flesh. God the Son taking on an additional human nature. Christ being born into this world of a virgin. Then living life upon this earth. It is Him coming from the courts and the divine realm of heaven to this earth taking on an additional nature. That's what the idea of appeared here is. And God the Father is the agent who has caused this appearing. We know this. God sent his son into the world. That phrase is stated all over the New Testament. Now notice then the purpose of this divine act of grace. It says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That is to say that Jesus, by taking on human flesh and coming to this earth, being born of a virgin, brought the hope of eternal life through the gospel to the people of this planet. Him coming in his incarnation brought deliverance from sin through his person and work as Savior and Lord. Him coming as the the divine God-man, completely and totally free from sin, coming to this planet to live the perfect life and then to go to the cross to purchase and redeem sinners from all across this planet, from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul reiterates this truth, saying that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And to that we say amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus declares that he came to seek and save the lost. This was his purpose. This was his aim. This was his primary prerogative to come to this earth to save people from their sin. What then does Paul mean here by all men? You see that there in verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. Begin with what he cannot mean. He cannot be referring to universal salvation for every individual. That is, that every human being who ever steps foot on this planet will somehow, through some avenue, some way, end up in heaven. He cannot. 
be referring to that. The Bible declares in both the Old and the New Testaments that many people have rejected God and his provision of salvation. And as a result of that rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that wide is the path that leads to destruction and there are many who take that path. So he is not teaching universal salvation. When Jesus came bringing salvation to all men, he is not saying that every single individual on this planet will end up in heaven. He can't mean that. But he is also not teaching universal atonement. That is... That Christ's atonement was specifically for all people without exception. The Bible teaches that Christ's death was specific and it was intentional in who it was for and that it accomplished who it was going to, who it was going to save. Matthew one twenty three says that Jesus would be born to a virgin and that he would save his people from their sin. It doesn't say that he might save his people from his sin. He didn't say that he came to make it possible to save people from their sin, but rather it says that he would accomplish the salvation intended of his people. John chapter 10 is one of the clearest chapters in the Bible that is centered on the reality that Christ came to lay down his life specifically for his sheep. And as you walk through John chapter 10, it becomes abundantly clear that his sheep are clearly identified as a particular group of people that were given to Christ by the Father. Again in John 17, in the famous prayer, Christ's high priestly prayer, before he goes to the cross, he makes abundantly clear that he is praying that God would protect those who are specifically his. And he uses the language of those whom you have given to me. These are those whom the Father elected before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And he chose us, referring to believers in that text, to be holy and blameless before him in love. And those who the, the Father elected are those for whom Christ died, who are those for whom the Spirit regenerates. You see, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, works in complete unity to accomplish the salvation of all whom the Godhead intended to save. So he is not referring to all men without exception, to every single individual. If he were, then, then we would have to fall on the side that says that Christ wasted blood on the cross. That Christ's intention was, was, was wavering. That, that the Father knew he, who he was going to elect, specifically. And the Spirit regenerates people specifically in this life and grants them life, but that somehow in Christ's atonement that that blood was basically splattered and it could hit here, hit here, and hit here. And That's just not how the Bible speaks of the unity of the Godhead. You see, Christ's death was particularly intentional for those whom Christ intended to save. So he's not referring to all men without exception. He is, however, by saying bringing salvation to all men, referring to all men, all people groups without distinction. Without distinction. That is, that is all people groups, people from every tongue, every tribe, and, and every nation. And you see this in the context of Titus chapter 2 even, uh, that when he referenced the, the various types of people that... that, that work through the discipleship process. You have, you have the older men, you have the older women, you have the younger men, you have the younger women, you have the, the slaves, you have all these various people groups in, in Titus chapter 2 that make up these congregations in Crete. And so Paul is saying here that this salvation brought on behalf of divine 
grace is for all people without distinction. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're rich. That Christ came to save sinners from every people group, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. That was his intended purpose. And friends, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, then this salvation has been brought to you. It's been brought to you. Divine grace has accomplished its overall purpose in your life. You have been elected before the foundation of the world. You have been purchased by by the perfect blood of Christ on the cross, and you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, and you have been brought to conversion, and you have submitted to Christ as Lord through faith. This divine grace, the purpose of divine grace has been accomplished in your life. You are a recipient of the divine grace of God. This God of the universe who is holy and perfect has decided has intended, has specifically chosen to bestow his divine grace upon you. And that reality motivates us, doesn't it? It motivates us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ that we have been called to live. That's the purpose of divine grace. Paul does not just disclose the purpose of divine grace. He, he continues on in our text, providing a second feature of divine grace that we see in verse 12, and that is this, the power of divine grace. The power of divine grace. He continues on there in verse 12. You can see it saying that grace instructs believers to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace that provides salvation through Christ also enables believers to live lives of holiness. Grace that doesn't lead to lives of holiness through instruction and training, is not the divine grace that saves. You can't take those two things apart. Divine grace that saves is divine grace that sanctifies. Genuine grace that saves produces genuine transformation in the individuals in which it saves. Verse 12 says that this grace instructs believers regarding things to avoid and things to embrace. And you see that first of all. And it's important to to, to understand that divine grace, which instructs in these things, also (coughs) provides the power for the believer to live obediently in these ways. He says, first of all, that, that grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The verb deny means to to disregard. It is to to renounce. It is to refuse to pay attention to. It It is to reject. It is to do what is necessary to remove these things from one's life. And this grace instructs us to to deny, to, to disregard, to renounce ungodliness, first of all. Ungodliness is is a lack of reverence for God. It is that which brings the judgment and the wrath of God. It is comprised of of attitudes and actions and dispositions that are against God and against what God is for. That is what ungodliness is. It is anti-godliness. It is against everything that God is for. 
says that believers are to deny ungodly thoughts, ungodly words, and ungodly actions. And they are to not constantly surround themselves with ungodly people as their closest companions. They are to deny, to reject, to disregard ungodliness. They are to put it off. But grace also instructs believers to deny worldly desires. You see that in verse 12. Worldly desires are desires or cravings for that which is forbidden by God. That which is earthly, that which is sensual. Believers are to deny their cravings for the things of the world. Those are defined in John, 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. They are to fight against those desires by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ daily and, and by putting those things to death. But grace doesn't just instruct believers to deny certain things. It also instructs us to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, verse 12 says. You will recognize that, that threefold word group as Paul has, has referenced it throughout his instruction to this letter. And to be frank with you, I, I have been taken back by the amount of times that Paul comes back primarily to this word, sensible. It is throughout the first two chapters mentioned time and time again. To live sensibly is to live a prudent, self-controlled life. A life that is not driven by compulsion, but one that is careful and thought out. Paul obviously sees this as an issue of primary importance in the church. It was an issue of primary importance in the, in the leaders of the church. And it was an issue of primary importance for the leaders to instruct the rest of the congregation in these things in the church. But we don't want to blow off this instruction by grace here to live sensible lives. You are at a prime position in your life as college students to embrace this instruction to begin to live a sensible life a prudent and self-controlled life that is not driven by impulses it is so easy for us to make impulsive decisions about everything that we do in life and we should be struck by the reality that time and time again to various people within the church that Paul instructs people to be self-controlled and to reject being impulsive. That's important. Mentioned time and time again. This is something we want to wrap our minds around. This is something we want to embrace. This is something we want to search out and say, okay, so how can I be more self-controlled? How can I learn to make decisions that aren't impulsive, but that are thought out? Because sensible people are mature people. Mature people are ones that God uses to build his kingdom. This is what we want to be. And this is incredibly important to the Apostle Paul because he says it over and over and over again. Friends, don't miss that. And here he says in our text that this grace, this grace that abundantly saves is the grace that has the power to instruct you to live a sensible life, a careful life, not driven by impulse, but driven by self-control. He also says that grace instructs us to live righteously. That is to live, to live justly and, and uprightly. Making right decisions and godly decisions and biblical decisions. Specifically, this word has, uh, is related to, to others and our relationship with others. Because you look at words like righteously and godly and they're, they're very similar but this first word, righteously, here in this context is, is, 
the fact that grace instructs our relationships with one another to be upright, to be conducted in a way that is, that is above board, to be conducted in a just way. In other words, the grace instructs us to treat one another rightly, to prefer one another, to encourage one another, to not bring one another down, to not demean one another, to not manipulate situations with one another, but to live uprightly, to live, to live above, above board, to live justly. And he says that grace also instructs us to live godly. That is, that is in reverence to God. That this word is specifically in relation to our, our relationship with the Lord. It, in our relationship with God, there should be a devout reverence that is characterized by worship and obedience. So we are instructed by grace to live self-controlled lives, not driven by impulse, lives that, where we conduct our relationships with one another in an upright and just and godly way and in a way in which we live in a devout, godly way towards the Lord and in a devoted life to God that is characterized by worship and obedience. That's what grace instructs us to do. And as I said, that grace that instructs us to do this is the grace that enables us to do this. It empowers us to do this. And notice why this instruction is necessary. You see it there at the end of verse 12. Paul says that it's for living in this present age. In this present evil age. In this age that is under the delegated rule of the evil one. Satan has been deemed as the ruler of this age by God for his purposes. And this is a very evil age. It is characterized by evil. And because of that, it is necessary, Paul says, for this continual instruction to be given to believers. Time and time again, we need to be reminded to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and, and to embrace a sensible life, a righteous life, a godly life. We need to be reminded of these things constantly because we are bombarded by evil on every side. You know that as you leave this place today and you go out into the world, that the temptations are just going to roll in. Evil can be found around every corner. You don't have to look far. Unfortunately, because we're corrupt individuals, evil, evil can be found when we close our eyes and things that happen in our minds. We are living in an evil age, an age that is ruled by the delegated authority of the evil one. So Paul says, listen, the power of grace, this grace which, which saves you, which, which has brought you out of death into life, transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This grace has the power also to sanctify your life. To, to lead you in living a sensible, righteous, godly life. And, and as you consider the power of grace, it's important to understand that, that embracing God's grace never results in a passive pursuit of obedience to Him. This is not a let go and let God kind of grace. Friends, that grace is not found in the Bible. It's not there. This is a grace that when it takes a hold of your life, when God bestows that gift of grace upon you, that it revolutionizes your life. That it transforms you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it never results in a passive pursuit of obedience. Rather, it is always characterized by an active pursuit of the things of God. How is it then that we are instructed by grace and empowered to, to embrace obedience? Well, it's through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You know, as I mentioned in my prayers, we began this morning that, that God's Word is sufficient for everything we need in life and godliness. That every single thing that God has wanted, wants us to know concerning Himself concerning the gospel, concerning Christ, concerning 
concerning this world, concerning how we are to live, everything in his his sovereign, perfect mind that he has wanted us to understand and know, he has given to us. He is not withholding anything from us. He's given us everything he wants us to understand. And this is sufficient. Sufficient for all of life and godliness. To be godly, to live life in a godly way. And so as we embrace the scriptures, as we sit under the truth on a weekly basis, as you work through your devotional plan on a daily basis, and and you work through a text and you pray through the text, as as you do the various Bible studies that you're involved in, as, as you work through the partner's discipleship, as you do all of these things, you are to do it in submission to the Spirit of God because the Spirit takes this truth, this divine, perfect, inspired, inerrant truth, and He pierces your life with it. And He peels back the layers of your, of your corrupt, deceitful soul. And He inserts that truth. That's Hebrews 4.12, right? The Word of God is, is a living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Spirit takes this word as you, as you digest it, as you embrace it. And he pierces your life with it. And you walk in obedience to that. And you are transformed into the glorious image of Christ. This happens as the Spirit applies that truth to the believer's life as one believes The instruction by faith. The Spirit empowers the believer to obey. And I just want to challenge you to consider where you are in light of that. When you hold this, open it up and read it, or do it digitally on your device, and how are are you coming to the Word of God? Are you coming in full submission to this divine truth from the divine God of this universe? From the all-powerful, eternal, holy, righteous, perfect God? Are you coming in submission to this truth every time you open it? If you are, if you're coming with that attitude of submission... Asking God to change your life through it. He's going to do that. He's going to use his spirit to push you into that obedience to this truth. To compel you to obey the one who's died for you. And then he's going to change your life through it. So I just encourage you, I challenge you. Approach the word of God in a right way. This is where we find our instructions. This is how grace instructs us. It's not some voice. It's not some some feeling. It's not some desire. It's the word of God. Well, not only are believers to be motivated to live holy lives by the purpose of grace and by the power of grace, but we find a third motivating feature here in verse 13, and that is the promise of divine grace. The promise of divine grace. Grace doesn't just motivate believers by instructing them how to live. It also motivates them with the hope of the life that is to come. Look at verse 13. So he uses another participle there at the beginning of verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Believers, you and I go through this Life having to fight for holiness with everything that we have. We can be motivated by the certain hope that lies ahead. By the the blessed hope, as, as Paul calls it here in verse 13. You see, one day this fight will be over. One day Jesus will return. One day you and I will be made new. And if you haven't been to the service yet this morning, you're gonna hear that in the service when you go there In just a little bit. Because Tom's talking about the millennium. 
One day you and I will be made new. One day the sinful flesh and temptation will be done away with. Friends, one day we will be with Christ. That is the blessed hope of the believer in divine grace. Paul says, promises this. Look again at the text. He says, looking. This word means to, to look forward to the fulfillment of our expectation, which is the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of Christ. Looking ahead here, again, is not passive. This is to wait actively, which, which means that day in and day out, we fulfill our earthly responsibilities, knowing that our future hope is on the horizon. This is to wait with certain expectation, not as, not as the world waits and hopes for something in a, in a wishful thinking sort of way. No, this is, a, this is a certain hope. This is a certain expectation. This is a promise. And so how are you actively waiting in your life right now? What does that look like? Are you being diligent with the time and the responsibilities that you have been given on this earth? Friends, are you right now living with the biblical priorities that we have been given in God's worth, knowing that doing that, that giving your life to the things that God has called you to give your life for is worth it? It's worth it. This is not all for nothing. Fighting day in and day out for holiness is not going to pass away. It is going to be worth it. Are you living with the constant perspective that Jesus is coming back? Our glorious Lord is coming back. And 1 John 3, 2 says that the moment we see him, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. Friends, I encourage you to consider these things. This blessed hope is absolutely certain. So what exactly is this referring to? Well, as you look at verse 13, you see that it is further defined with the phrase that follows. That this blessed hope of the believers is, is the appearing of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. In Greek, we say that, that these two phrases are in opposition to one another. That, that this one is connected with this one. That this one is just further defining this one. It's the description of the blessed hope. The description of the blessed hope is the appearing of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It speaks of the second coming of Christ, where he will make all things new and give believers their new bodies. This speaks of spending eternity with Christ. This speaks of eternal rewards. All the striving in this life to live for the Lord, prioritizing the things in his word that he has called us to and fighting sin will end with us getting eternal rewards for living faithfully. Now this word, the blessed hope, the appearing of Christ, the second coming of Christ encapsulates all of those things. That's what we have to look forward to. This speaks of perfect happiness and fulfillment in fact, one commentator labeled the blessed hope as, as the hope above all other hopes. That's what this is. This is referring to the absolutely certain culmination of our salvation that is set into motion with Christ's return. Notice in verse 13 that this is not just the appearing of any regular person. Rather that this is glory personified. Just as grace was personified in verse 11, this is glory personified. And who? The same person. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see that there in verse 13. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Paul is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to him very intentionally as our great God and Savior. This, this right here, friends, is one of the clearest phrases in the New Testament that underscores the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is God, the eternal God. You can't see this 
in English as clearly. They do a good job with the translation. But in the Greek text, this phrase, our great God and Savior, is governed by a a single, second-person, singular, non-proper article. Sorry. Which means this, that it is referring to one and the same person. You see, Greek Greek is a very specific language. It's very specific. I mean, English is specific, but Greek is very specific. It's very specific with where it places words. It's it's specific with how it uses the article and all of these different things. And so this is a certain grammatical issue right here in this text. It's actually called the Granville Sharp Rule. It is great God and Savior is not speaking of two separate individuals grammatically, but it is referring to one person, Christ Jesus. This is intentional by the Apostle Paul. He is underscoring. He is screaming this. He is putting exclamation point after exclamation point after exclamation point on the reality that this person who is going to appear is the glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the one who will appear in all his glory. This is the one who is the promise of grace. This is the one who is the focal point of our blessed hope. It's Christ. It's Christ. Our affections are to be for Christ. Our love is to be for Christ. But notice that Paul doesn't stop there with motivating believers with divine grace. He goes on to a fourth motivation for living holy lives by showing us the picture of divine grace there in verse 14. The picture of divine grace. And notice how he isn't content with just declaring the deity of this glorious one who will appear. But he continues on giving us a clear picture of what grace looks like in the accomplishment of our salvation. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Who... There in verse 14 is referring back to Christ in verse 13. He gave himself for us. Notice the clear statement of substitution in that phrase. That Christ gave himself. That is to say that he specifically dedicated himself for the purpose of being our sacrifice for sin. That is what Christ did. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange. This is Christ's imputed righteousness, imputed to the believer. And the believer's sin credited to Christ, secured by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. This is the language of substitution. Christ gave himself. Notice the accomplishment of this substitution. He says it's to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify a people for himself. See, the cost of redemption was the life of Christ given up on the cross. To redeem is to rescue from sin. It is to set the believing sinner from the penalty and power of sin in this age and eventually uh, from the presence of sin in the life to come. Our lawless deeds include every sin and our, our disposition towards that sin. We've been purchased out of bondage to sin. That's what it means to redeem. This is Romans 6. Paul talks about our bodies have been redeemed out of the old way of life and our members are now to to be used in in a a life that is pleasing to God. And this is not because of anything we have earned, but it is because of the grace of Christ. This is the picture of grace. Christ giving himself for us. Christ's accomplishment on the cross didn't just redeem believers. It also purified believers. Believers. It says he purified a people for himself. This is the language of cleansing from Ezekiel 36, from from John 3, the language of the new birth, to cleanse us from our sin. Believers, by the death of Christ, have had their sins washed away, removed as far as the east is from the west, and they have been rendered fit to be in the presence of God. That's what it means to cleanse. This is spelled out in Ephesians 5, where Paul He's using Christ's love for the church to direct husbands to love their wives in the same way. Wish we could turn there for a second. We're not going to. We're running out of time. But, but you see there, Tom's going to read it in the, in the service this morning. That husbands are to love their wives in a sacrificial way, in a service way, in a nourishing way. 
They are to love in that kind of way, and, and he uses that to, to cleanse the wife, to, to cause her to be fit to stand before the presence of Christ. It's part of the sanctifying truth of marriage. That's the cleansing that he's talking about. It's a picture of the cleansing. This cleansing has, has, re, has acquired a special people for, for Christ's possession. You see that there in verse 14. Throughout the Old Testament, God's special people was the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it becomes clear that God's special people now includes the church. Not as a replacement for Israel. God is not done with Israel. He's going he's to deal with Israel in the millennial reign of Christ. He's going to fulfill his promises to the nation to, to all of those who, who come to Christ. As he says, all Israel will be saved there in, in Romans 11, referring to a remnant, a group of people who will be saved, who he will demonstrate his grace to by fulfilling those promises to them. So it's not a replacement, but God's special people in the New Testament do, does refer to the church. In 1 Peter, Peter uses language to describe the church that refers to them as God's chosen people. These are those who were elected from the foundation of the world for salvation. They they are the intended recipients of God's special divine grace. This language of a people for his own possession speaks of those who are the crown jewel of God, the rich possession of God. Those who are eternally kept by the power of God. Believer, it's you and I. That is who we are in the eyes of God. We are the crown jewel of God. Hard to believe that sometimes as we look at our own hearts and our own lives and and the sin that we still mess around with. But if you're sitting here and you're in Christ this morning, you're the crown jewel of God. You're, You're a prized possession of God that he purchased with his son This is an incredible picture of divine grace, one that motivates us to live for the one who sacrificed himself for us. You see what Paul is doing, using the beauty of grace time and time again to continue to compel us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. There's one final feature we'll just touch on briefly of divine grace, which Paul gives to motivate believers to live lives of holiness. You see that at the end of verse 14. We'll call this the product of divine grace. The product of divine grace. He says, there, look, um, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it is, zealous for good deeds. The special people possessed by God are ones who produce good works. Grace produces believers who are earnestly committed, that's what zealous means here, to live out their role as God's workmanship. This is the same thing Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 after highlighting that salvation is by grace through faith. He says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in those good works. The product of divine grace is faithful believers who love Christ and are zealous about accomplishing the works prepared for them to do. So divine grace motivates believers to live holy lives and to, to disciple others to do the same. That motivation is clearly seen in the purpose of grace, and the power of grace, and the promise of grace, the picture of grace, and the product of grace. Friends, you and I are compelled by the grace of God to live for the one who died for us. If you're not in Christ here this morning, then you know nothing of this grace. You might be trying to earn your way to heaven, some kind of moral lifestyle. You might, you might be trying to buy your way into heaven somehow. You might totally disregard the reality of eternal life in heaven and the fact that there's going to be a judgment. But frankly, you know nothing of this grace. You know nothing of the beauty of grace. I encourage you. I invite you. I petition you. I urge you to experience this amazing grace today. This grace that we see personified in Christ. The one who came and lived the perfect life, who died a sacrificial death upon the cross, who rose again to prove that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. 
He offers this grace freely to you today. He wants you to experience the purpose of grace. Believer, be motivated by God's divine grace to pursue holiness personally and to live holy lives in this world, to be salt and light to this dark culture that surrounds us. You know, the famous hymn that we're going to sing in just a minute, Amazing Grace, declares the truth that we have studied this morning in a perfect way. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I've already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And here's the blessed hope, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, by shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friends, Bask, bask in the marvelous grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of grace personified in the person of Christ. We are so undeserving. And we struggle in so many ways. In and of ourselves, we are not fit to be your children. We are not fit to ever stand in your presence. We are not fit to go through this life in a way that pleases you, fighting for the things that that you're about. Father, because of your amazing, divine, sufficient, all-consuming grace, We are here humbly before you, our hearts bowed low, praising you that you have chosen to set this grace upon us for your purposes and for your glory and certainly, God, for our benefit and our good. We rejoice in that. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.